everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paidea Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here, as always, by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. And today we have in front of us another very, very interesting, very influential text, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, a text that has had not just a great influence, but a myriad of different sorts of influences on Western culture and Western literature, broadly speaking. And I believe you had a passage, or rather a passage or two, that you were going to read to us, Dr. Masson. Would you do so now? Yeah, we discussed what we might read from it. It's hard to know. But this is uh, the Frankenstein monster, the creature reading from a book. It's a book that we read here on Paideia Today as well, Paradise Lost. Uh, he had been abandoned by this point. By the way, he's in hiding while he's reading this. So I'll read it from that chapter 15. Paradise Lost excited different and far deeper emotions. I read it as I had read the other volumes which had fallen into my hands as a true history. It moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. I often referred to several situations as their similarity struck me to my own. Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence. But his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the especial care of his creator. He was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature. But I was wretched helpless and alone. Many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition, for often like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. Excellent. So there's a lot going on there. Obviously we have um, uh, an intertextual reference there. The text is in conversation with other texts. And you and I were discussing before we hit the record button that in many senses, uh, this novel is more of an ideas novel. Um, it compares uh, as a very different, uh, a radically different text uh, than the one we just discussed in the previous episode of Paideia Today, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And you observed, I think quite rightly, that in terms of the actual writing down on the, the ground level, in terms of dialogue, in terms of setting, in terms of imagery, in terms of the cultivation of certain subtle tones and atmospheres, uh, Pride and Prejudice is uh, well ahead of this novel here. Having said that, this novel here still excites tremendous amounts of interest from its readers. And there's a few things we need to say right at the front end by way of uh, shopkeeping and such. Uh, one is that uh, the monster is the monster is the monster. In fact, he's actually usually referred to in here as something like the creature or some such. The creature is not to be confused with his creator, who is Victor Frankenstein. So the monster is not a Frankenstein. The monster is Frankenstein's creature. That's who he is. So that's one thing we need to clear up. Second of all, as uh, we could hear from Dr. Masson's reading just now, uh, the creature actually is quite intelligent and comparatively eloquent, um, oftentimes, especially since I believe it's uh, the 1931 or 34 movie of uh, Frankenstein. 31. 31. We tend to think of uh, the Frankenstein creature 
I'm just going to call him the creature from here on in, as some kind of lumbering, half-mindless, homicidal yeah, brute, exactly, because he certainly looks a brute. He's said to stand eight feet tall. Uh, he's possessed of almost supernatural strength. Um, the sinews and veins and what have you of, under his skin um, are visible. Uh, he looks quite the fright, and of course, this is very important to the no novel. But what he is not, in spite of that appearance, is a crude brute. He is certainly a homicidal at a certain point and remains so. But uh, he is, he is uh, extremely intelligent and able to work his way through particularly vexing problems. I'm not going to say human problems because it's up in the air as to whether or not he is human. I think probably more it would be safer to call him a person than a human because this is a central uh, concern for Dr. Frankenstein as we move into the future. Um, Dr. Masson, can we get some initial thoughts from you about the novel? Well, it began uh, as a series of a sort of a competition. Uh, Mary was traveling with her husband, Percy, and Lord Byron in uh, Switzerland. And they decided that they wanted to tell something along the lines of uh, a ghost story, the sort of thing that one does at summer camps and so forth. And this is Mary's... Uh, contribution to that and um, it was well received by uh, her her husband and Byron and they convinced her to publish it which she then eventually did she wrote it at the age of 18 which is one of the things that is most impressive about it we we both have expressed off camera our reservations about the quality of the writing compared to say a Jane Austen but in terms of the ideas it's it's fascinating and even in terms of the um, influence of this book itself, you could easily see it as the beginning of science fiction. It certainly falls within the Gothic novel genre in general, in terms of its setting, in terms of its uh, some of its features, although it lacks some of the others. Um, and it does follow, we talked about the novel last week, it begins in an epistolary fashion with a series of letters. Uh, and it has various uh, framing narrative structures in it, which um, I, I mean are reasonably clever, um, although not particularly inventive. Uh, and at the heart of all of those is this actual reading by the creature of this book, Paradise Lost. And it is interesting that uh, she reflects on on Adam and the creator. The, the word for Frankenstein that the creature uses is creator, so it's very much Christian language in that sense. There is not talking about God, they're talking specifically about a creator and also the obligations that a creator owes to his creation. Moral obligations, which in turn raise the ethical issues that I think make the, the uh, book so fascinating, which are the issues of uh, that arise in the light of modern science, uh, which are those of transhumanism um, and, and the experimentation on people that takes place increasingly come the mid 19th century onwards. So it's ahead of its time in that sense. It's already raising warning uh, flags about what science is doing or considering to do and the boundaries and the ethical uh, boundaries that arise from that. Um, and so she does that and it, it's fascinating for that reason. I, I do read it in or, or teach it on my courses uh, more because of the ideas it raises uh, than because of the quality of the writing, uh, but yes. It's um, 
Well, it's, it has a subtitle, uh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And of course, Prometheus is this mythological figure who brings great things to humanity, um, a Promethean figure in that sense. Uh, Fire from the gods. Yes, Thief. precisely. Um, so they have this in brain. In fact, they like speaking about the figure of Prometheus quite a bit amongst the Romantics. So this is kind of a light motif. It is. Yeah, end. very big theme in the 18th century, Prometheus. Yes. And um, uh, as you say, it's it's well put together in terms of its broad strokes, uh, the, the way in which the plot is situated. Uh, as you say, it's it starts off with an epistolary exchange um, between somebody who finds and saves Frankenstein out in the Arctic wastes. Yes, Walton. And I believe it was his sister he's uh, uh, corresponding with. But then within that, you get the narrative of framed within that you get the narrative of Frankenstein and then framed within the narrative of Frankenstein, you have the narrative of the monster. And at the core of that is the reading you just gave to us here. Yeah, yeah. So it's well put together in that sense, um, where I don't think it does as well as Pride and Prejudice is in terms of characterization, but I'm not sure that that was particularly important to Mary Shelley as she wrote this text. <laughs> nor, the, uh, nor the Gothic novel, really, it's not. <laughs> no, she's just taking advantage of, of uh, the bits and pieces that are around her. Uh, she was, uh, as you say, she was with Lord Byron and her husband and soon her sister as well. And another individual whose name, uh, oh, Hogg, I can't remember Hogg's first name, H-O-G-G. And they were staying up in a chateau, as you say, in Switzerland. They were inside, they were cooped up inside because it was a particularly dark uh, year um, because of a volcanic eruption almost on the other side of the world. But nevertheless, the, uh, the ash that was from that uh, made this a particularly grim, dark uh, and infertile year. And it was in that year that this story was birthed. It took a little while to get going. And uh, Mary Shelley at one point relates how she was getting particularly vexed by being asked every morning if she had an idea yet for her horror story. Uh, and then eventually, perhaps through badgering or perhaps not, um, she began on the text. It took her a while to actually write it, um, but uh, nevertheless, she got it out. She was, I think, still 20 when it finally went to the publishers. Oh, yeah. yeah, so she starts when she's 18, gets published while she's still 20. Um, so we have that. As you've already said, uh, usually if somebody says, uh, what's an example of the Gothic novel, everyone sort of points immediately to Shelley's Frankenstein. And you're right, some of the features of the Gothic novel are there. At the heart of it, of course, is this intent to give you kind of a sublime thrill of horror um, that is driving the, the action of the text. Um, you've got a monster, of course, at the middle. You've got um, you, you've got characters who are crossing taboo boundaries, and here, in, in this case, here, one of the greatest of taboo boundaries, the act of the cre creation of actual people and life itself. That people are playing gods. Frankenstein is playing God. In fact, one of the interesting things in here, other than outside of Paradise Lost, is the sheer absence of God from the narrative, um, which sure. is striking, which is very striking. And you said that this is uh, a lot of people would identify this as the taproot of science fiction. And by way of extension, therefore, it gets associated also with fantasy. Mm -hmm. And you can also point out that this is probably one of the earliest and most influential texts in the evolution of the horror novel as well. Um, it's, it's absolutely central to these sorts of things. So it's important yep. on all of these fronts here. Yep. So it's it's really interesting that a young woman of her uh, tender years, 
uh, at that time uh, is writing such an influential groundbreaking novel so it, it for that reason alone that's why we're looking at it uh, here um, but I we we raised the issue of Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. There are two strands to that myth. The older one is that of Prometheus uh, Porphyros. The, he carries fire from the gods, but he yep. does it by stealing it. So there's a sense of illicit action and, and a defiance of the Olympian gods. And so transgression, he's punished for that. He's one of the Titans, right? Yes. The second strand is a later developing one uh, in the Roman period, and that is of uh, a Prometheus who creates humanity, and he does so from uh, the from from clay, and very much then like the uh, creation story in in Genesis, where God forms Adam from clay, and and she doesn't mention this, but there's there are some Jewish um, writings in and of the period uh, of the Golem. Um, in which uh, this uh, being is fashioned again from clay um, and, and given life and, and so forth. And um, certainly when you, you mentioned the popular influence, when it came to the uh, Frankenstein, you know, the Boris Karloff movie, it was preceded by a few others, one of them being the go uh, Golem. Uh, so a Jewish, um, maybe even a Kabbalistic type idea. But at any rate, there's a sense of doing something that is vaguely religious but also not orthodox and somehow taboo and probably dangerous and that and she breaches that topic as you said at the outset with the story of Walton uh, who's an explorer we meet him up in the Arctic uh, trying to find the Northwest Passage and getting stuck increasingly in the flows of ice and now he's doing so for humanitarian reasons. He's a scientist, but he sees himself as pushing the boundaries of civilization out into places where they had not been before. Remember, this is the age of exploration. And we take it for granted with the modern technology where everything can be seen on Google Maps and so forth, that the globe has been uh, thoroughly uh, seen and charted and so forth. That's not so in the 19th century. There, there were still explorations happening even in Shelley's day and some of them were of dubious quality and this one in particular uh he's trying to find the northwest patches well there's nothing wrong with that per se but it's a dangerous expedition his companions are crying out to walton to turn back he doesn't want to do that because he is committed to to, to doing this even if it's going to cost him his life so he's admirable in one sense on the other hand he meets then this bedraggled figure of Victor Frankenstein caught out on an ice floe who's about to die. He brings him on board and he tells him his story. And when he hears his story, he hears a story very similar to his own. Here's a man who's been pushing the boundaries of science, allegedly for the sake of humanity, and everyone around him is uh, in the dark about what he's doing. And in fact, is opposed to it as far as they know it. And there are terrible consequences to his story. The story concludes with Walton's narrative as well. Having heard Victor's story and the creature's story, he turns back from his voyage. So he learned it's a sort of a morality tale in that sense. He learns from the story of those others. But Shelley's talking about modern science and its pushing of boundaries uh, in many ways uh, without any uh, ethical discussion of what's going on or the consequences of it and raising the big question. Uh, ought science to be 
circumscribed in some way by ethical uh, prescriptions before it does what it does rather than afterwards just because it can do certain things maybe ought that it, that's not sufficient uh, justification to do it uh, and and those sorts of issues have arisen throughout uh, Shelley's period and on to this very day where scientists are doing things in laboratories that most of us are are, are rather horrified to learn after the fact and then <laughs> it's a mad scramble to try and uh, rein in the terrible consequences which the scientists themselves seem not to have foreseen or to think that's not their job to consider such things they're just to push the boundaries so those issues arise out of it and that's just a fascinating topic in itself i think in some senses you can describe mary shelley as being relatively prescient on a lot of these fronts um i was just uh dealing with um the moral imperatives of scientists in the 20th century and we were talking about uh, the manhattan project and the attitude of the sciences uh, scientists involved in developing that and one of the things that you'll hear said again and again of these scientists who are pushing another boundary is that uh, across the board nobody seemed to care about the consequences of what they were developing they, their, their only real concern was could they do it um and this was a notable thing about this scientific culture that produced and that was working in the Manhattan Project. We see a similar sort of thing with Werner von Braun, um, who didn't really care that his rocket technology and all his work was being used to make weapons of mass destruction. It was just not on his or radar. Carry them at any rate. Yeah, yeah he, he, uh, he knew it was happening, but elicited no concern whatsoever. Um, this is a, a kind of a thing, we, we could observe this of scientific discoveries all over the place throughout the 20th century and to some extent the Victorian period as well. And in the um, 21st. We are talking at the moment we're living in lockdown with with uh, suggestions that the current coronavirus originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. It's strong. At any rate, whether that's the case or not, there is certainly virus research going on that would, you know, if the viruses get out, this is a very bad thing. <laughs> it's it's well mary shelley is as i said she is prescient with a lot of things she says including this particular line of the narrative just because we can do it should we do it uh, do we play god how far do we push this she does have some precedence herself though in doing that uh, a text that you and i have not discussed but that is very important to uh, the development of western culture and specifically romanticism and literary culture is uh, Goethe's faust um yep in which we encounter the protagonist, we certainly can't call him a hero, but we encounter a protagonist who is pushing the boundaries of what science and knowledge can do. And he has this overwhelming hunger for something he cannot name. It's sublime, of course. Um, and eventually he pursues this line of boundless Faustian ambition, and it destroys him. Um, so here we have another great thinker, uh, like Dr. Frankenstein, he's pushing the boundaries of what one can and ought to do, and likewise, he ends tragically. Mm. We should probably also note here that uh, Walton and Frankenstein are not necessarily led to push the boundaries by motives which are fully admirable. No. Uh, to some extent, Walton is driven by sort of a deep spiritual ennui, um, a restlessness of the soul, uh, something that, of course, the uh, romantics would, would be very familiar with and excited about. Um, and so this is how that ambition, that ennui has played itself out, his great 
almost semi-divine uh, ambition and restlessness. And likewise, Frankenstein is led to a large extent into his studies in science and to push those boundaries of science. Uh, he's not drawn towards anything. He's running from something amongst other things. One of the things that's driving him into science is it's an escape from grief and sorrow. Yeah. Um, and this is what's informing some of his activity and some of his motives. So the, the motives are sketchy in every direction. Um, another thing I find quite interesting about this text is the fact that though Mary Shelley certainly gets into a lot of romantic motifs and even themes to some extent. At the end of the day, the text is a tragic text. It is a horror text. It is a gothic text. And it ends badly for so many of the characters in here, including uh, the protagonist himself. So if you think that Mary Shelley is simply an uncritical um, romantic who um, is digesting and celebrating many of the notions central to romanticism at this time, uh, this novel actually problem problematizes that impression uh, quite, quite a bit, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, I find the, the novel refreshing. Clearly, the 18-year-old Mary Shelley could think for herself in some respects, and this is a demonstration thereof. Hmm. Now, uh, Scott, you mentioned transhumanism which is, you and I know what it is. It's one of the dominant, some would even argue the dominant cultural movement of our age right now. Um, and you associate this, I think quite rightly with uh, the Promethean impulse, which is being explored in Frankenstein. Can you say a little bit more about that so our, our listeners can connect the dots uh, more easily? Well, sure, I'll, I'll try and do that. Um... Gen in general, we this podcast called Paideia Today, which is about a, a very broad ranging understanding of, of education that encompasses the whole person um, and uh, includes not just subjects to learn, but how they integrate and how they connect to broader topics, including theological and philosophical issues and things that would be associated these days with um, topics that are, are no longer fashionable like metaphysics and so forth. These things arise uh, naturally in education. There are questions that simply are big, deep questions that are a part of the, the humanities traditionally conceived. And in that mandate to educate, there has always been a, man, a mandate to uh, make uh, people uh, fully human, to humanize them as it were, to make them the best they can be to cultivate their minds to make them fruitful human beings and and so as a christian on this i would say that milton expresses my thoughts on this when he talks about the aims of education would be to restore the ruins um, caused by our first parents by knowing god aright etc so it's 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 a repair project it's a the, the house has collapsed in how do we repair that and it's it's a moral pursuit it's an it's a scientific pursuit, it's educational, it's character, it's all manner of things. But the transhumanist, so that project of cultivation exists all the way up, I would say, up until the mid 18th century. Come that period onwards, it, it shifts subtly and ever and increasingly it, it gathers speed so that the project of humanity isn't to recover a humanity that has been marred by original sin, but rather to take this stuff of humanity and to reform it in a in an image that the scientist or the educator decides he or she wants to project 
So the Frankenstein creature is in a sense a fit image of what modern education views as its aims, namely to create something new and different, and at least from their eyes, superior to what has happened in the past. So it's to take human nature and to improve upon it. But the criteria of improvement are never explicitly stated. In this, in this case, uh, the creature is eight feet tall. Frankenstein intends the creature to be beautiful. He's not beautiful. He's been dug up from the, the corpses of dead bodies. He's, he's hideous, in fact. Uh, when, when people see this creature, they're horrified at, at the mere sight of him. And of course, he has superhuman strength. And as you said, he's not a dumb brute. He is highly intelligent, um, which only increases his torment. And all of these things are reflections to some degree, Mary Shelley, I think, in raising those issues is the whole transhumanist uh, motivation is what? What is the intended outcome of these experiments on human nature? Um, she, suggest, she seems to suggest uh, from the novel, they have no idea what the outcome will be. They're just going to do it and then we'll see and the outcome is invariably horrifying and then we have to try and uh, rein things in after the fact. Um, but that's what transhumanism does. And I do think the experiment on human and human nature has been going on in education for many, many decades now. Best addressed, by the way, in a little book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man, um, in which he talks about this same uh, use of education to, to that uh, ignores matters of, of beauty and of moral, uh, the moral nature of humanity as if they were irrelevant to the humanities and and his argument is if you do that you have hollowed out the very heart of education it's no longer paideia it is a sort of a transhumanism and who knows where it's going he he speaks very ill of it he, he speaks of it as the abolition of man frankenstein is an, an expression of that in a different way good thank you yeah this notion of, of uh, transcendence in transhumanism is is vital to understanding it. They seek to transcend that which was and that which has very importantly been built up. Um, and they uh, they get very excited oftentimes about breaking and transcending boundaries which have a relatively taboo nature about them, going someplace one ought not to go, never, never mind whether or not one can go there. It has often traditionally been thought we ought not to go there, and now they're very excited about going exactly there. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of crossovers. There's a lot of relevance in Frankenstein, the novel, to situations and questions that we're dealing with currently. Um, you mentioned that Shelley, there's no God in Shelley's novel. There's no appeal to God. There's no ethical understanding of it. And, and we mentioned the Gothic novel. One of the features of the Gothic novel uh, is often that the the bad guys are are the priests and the nuns. They, they're the ones committing the murders and doing illicit things. And so that's not here. We don't find that here. What we find here as the villains is the scientists. Um, and the scientists aren't uh intentionally built they're almost stumbling upon it um they're not they're not um aware that there are moral and ethical issues they just don't recognize them as having any purchase on their actions um but after they have succeeded in their enterprises then they suddenly realize that these are relevant but it's too late by that point so it's a cautionary tale uh and it's a cautionary tale that it seems 
the uh, Western world has never taken seriously enough to take caution from it based on what you've said. Yeah, it's one of the things that's quite striking, not just about Victor Frankenstein in here, and perhaps you could make this argument uh, with Walton as well, but also with this, so many of the scientists um, who have done the unthinkable and crossed boundaries we now retroactively uh, understand should perhaps not have been crossed, is that they seem to lack precisely this Paideia aspect of education. Had they, had they been educated at the level of um, character as well, and if they'd understood the evolution of certain modes of comportment, uh, especially ones which are considered on the one hand virtuous and on the other hand to be vices, then they might have had uh, an educational cha a chance by way of education to actually discern that maybe the things that they're engaged on ought not to be engaged upon, but they've never, their, their ethical sensibilities have never been properly, deeply and meaningfully educated. Their only question is, can I? Not ought I? They are not. The, the, the ought is very much part of the Paideia education. What exactly is the tradition of that? And how do you actually think deeply, critically, and responsibly about those modes of comportment and aspects of character and things of that sort? And, and David, David Hume and the Enlightenment have rejected these as having any relevance to uh, proper education. We yes, can't, we can't talk about ought. And we can't make no. it right. And so we we dismiss the moral life per se. For all we want to say about David Hume and his good influence on the Scottish Enlightenment, he does debunk the very idea that the ought question sh should apply. <laughs> yes. And so when we talk about, I mean, you and I have deplored the work in the 20th century of people like John Dewey and what have you, who have largely moved us or continue to move uh, uh, public education away from the ought aspects of things. But we have to understand that he's not the first person in that chain back way back into the 18th century people like you're talking about here the positivists the humes um, a number of other figures as well they are denuding the scientists of a strand of education which was vital equipment in order to do what they do responsibly and now in the 20th century we have the consequences of that and continue to see the see that uh, play out in various hair-raising ways. One other one feature, Bill, that I wanted to raise here is there seems also to be a sort of a clash here. Remember that uh, Mary uh, was we haven't said this yet, but she was the the daughter of the famous feminist uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and um, uh, her husband her husband her father was William Godwin who's a, a famous progressivist novelist and so forth. Uh, her mother died in childbirth. But as the daughter of a famed feminist wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women in response to Thomas Paine's Vindication of the Rights of Man, um, one would have thought that the female protagonists in the, the novel would have some admirable character uh, or some sort of role central in some way, like think of Elizabeth Bennet, we just spoke of last week how how admirable she was as a character. We find no such character in this, and in fact, every female character in this story ends up dead at the hands of the creature or the or the male figures who are uh, seemingly devoid of um, female sensibilities. With one exception, that's a poet. But there's a the poets seem to represent the tradition of love, very romantic. But so we got the humanities there in relation to love and the scientists 
of being effectively killing them off. So we get the beginning of a, of a clash between the sciences and the arts, but the arts conceived in terms of love, but the love of very effete mm -hmm. and quite frankly, pointless um, expression of what is a dominant cultural feature of the West, which is the importance of love, but is tied with the character of God. Going back to this Frankenstein, uh, the story that uh, the Frankenstein creature read from Paradise Lost, God in his nature is is love. God is love. And, and it's the it's the bedrock feature of Augustinian theology that love is the prime motivation for all conduct and all things work in accordance with love and so forth. In Shelley's pale rendering of that, it's just an emotional response. And as I say, they it, it's sacrificed at the hands of these figures uh, who are scientists who um, are basically, uh, as you said, emotionally scarred by their childhood experiences and avoiding uh, loving relationships. And, and it's telling that that Victor Frankenstein cloisters himself off for two years to conduct this experiment. He, he's not responding to his fiancee who's waiting around for him to show up and so forth, but he's he's doing these things in secret. Um, so the, the love has been, uh, in its rich theological sense, has been shorn from the novel. And now we just have this, this pale clash of a, a very pallid form of love and a very, quite frankly, a brutal form of science. Yeah, I can't remember who it was. I heard an anecdote about a famous German scientist, sometimes around the turn of the century, or maybe late Victorian. And he was deep in his work in his in his laboratory. And somebody came to him and told him that his his wife, who had been dying for some time, was now finally dying. And he answered distractedly, yes, yes, just give me a minute here. Um, <laughs> which perhaps goes to, to the dramatizing the point here. It makes you wonder if um, Victor Frankenstein, who plays God to the creature, obviously, um, how it would have changed the narrative, would have changed the plot had he done what he'd done and responded and built up a relationship with the creature of love. Um, but as you say, it's, it's uh, conspicuous by its absence in this novel here. By the way, as a side note, uh, you were talking about clerical figures oftentimes being cast in Gothic novels as uh, villains. The villains, the, the hidden villains. And I think probably where that begins, we haven't discussed this text here, but there is a preceding uh, Gothic novel by Lewis. I can't remember his first name, certainly not C.S. Lewis. Uh, called Samuel. Exactuel. There we go. Good. Thank you. Um, so that's where that whole tradition comes from. But they're not the bad guys in here. This isn't what happens. Our protagonist is probably a front runner for the bad guy here, along with the creature that he creates. Um, what more did we want to say about this? Well, I, a couple of things, and this is just, um, I mentioned the setting at the outset of the novel, uh, Walton going into the Arctic regions, uh, exploring their, um, icy landscape and so forth. One might say, so what? Similarly, uh, central, the, the setting is in Switzerland in the midst of the Alps, Mont Blanc is the largest mountain in Europe. It's central in this novel as well. Uh, both of them are illustrations of the aesthetic experience that is called the sublime. Um, it's, it's an expanse uh, of seemingly limitless proportions, bright, blazing, 
um, and uh, in the face of which humanity seems powerless. And um, and and both of those are are features in the novel, important features. So there's a and the associate and and what's further interesting about this is the sublime is is associated with power. Um, historically speaking, the sublime and we I think we talked about this a little while ago. The sublime and the beautiful connecting, and the sublime at one point being the most beautiful thing was the sublime. But by this point, they've been dissociated, and the sublime is no longer a beautiful experience. It's a terrifying one. It's one in which life cannot uh, exist. It, it, it suggests great power akin to God-like power. So Mont Blanc is worshipped, as it were, as this natural uh, reflection of God's omnipotent power. Uh, and Shelley knows that. And her husband, Percy, is, writes a poem called Mont Blanc. And Byron also writes about not only Prometheus, but Mont Blanc. It's a setting for his uh, poetry as well, so very influential. It's an expression of power, but it's an expression of power, as I say, in the face of which humanity is really irrelevant. Uh, and that's important here also because the beautiful is associated with uh, something over which we have power and particularly with women. So the sublime becomes masculinized and the beautiful becomes feminized, but neither of them are touch one another they're divorced from one another we start to see the severance of the, the the men and the women just like the arts and the humanities they all fall apart here and they're represented that also is represented here in the novel i think in the way that female creature female characters uh, are totally as i say effete and the male characters are similarly emotionally scarred and destructive to boot Yes, uh, one of the things that's immediately distinctive about the romantics is that the big movers and shakers almost invariably are all men. Um, and to some extent, not just uh, in the world of uh, literature, but also to some extent in the world of uh, philosophy, there are sometimes deliberate moves made to actually move away from the merely pretty, which seems to be the provenance of women and maybe the middle class uh, women particularly, and into this new realm, which is at least implicitly uh, distinctly masculine. This is one of the things I find, again, that makes Mary Shelley very interesting to me, because she does not follow a lot of the precepts that are laid out by those around her who are so excited and galvanized by these ideas. Uh, we should also talk maybe a little bit about uh, the work, uh, intellectual work at least, I wouldn't say the literary work, um, but the intellectual work of another woman writing uh, in the vicinity chronologically to Mary Shelley, and that is Anne Radcliffe. Mm -hmm. Anne Radcliffe is important for a number of reasons, but one of the most uh, important reasons uh, to my thinking is that she's the one who connected an experience of the sublime with the experience of terror, of horror. And so the Gothic novel, uh, largely under the powers of Anne Radcliffe, but then with the assistance, perhaps incidentally, of Mary Shelley, uh, the Gothic novel becomes connected to and intertwined with notions of the sublime, but now in the most dark, negative, powerful sense that you could possibly imagine. Um, she, gets also, from, she gets that from Burke, though. That yeah. is actually Edmund Burke. He explicitly mentions terror. Yep. And we should also, you mentioned that her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft is one of the great towering figures of feminism. And... Uh, you're right, you would have thought that even 
even though she died in giving birth to Mary Shelley, that at some remove she would have had an influence on Mary's thinking as she grew up. But for the most part, does not seem to have had that much of an influence on her, at least in, in those respects. Her father, William Godwin, as you say, an extremely influential, very progressive in, uh, individual known to all the romantics. He's, he's oh, yes. part, of, part of romantic royalty, if you like. Um, he's also famous for being uh, one of the most influential modern secular thinkers on notions of determinism. Many uh, thinkers and lines of conversation around determinism in 2021 uh, trace their way oftentimes at several removes back to the work of William Godwin. That's interesting. So, yeah, if you haven't heard about William Godwin, you may want to have a glance at a few things to sort of familiarize yourself with him. He's one of these figures who had, who continues to have an influence, but who has largely vanished from uh, from uh, the history of Western thought for your average person. Mm -hmm. We have another thing in here, and I'm keen to get your views on this here. The creature at a certain point um, makes an extended defense of his evil actions to Victor Frankenstein uh, as a product fundamentally, if not almost exclusively, of his environment and his history. Um, and as you and I both know, this is a conversation that uh, is enormously influential at so many levels nowadays and in the past as well, of course. Um, so who ultimately bears responsibility for the evils of the creature? Is it the creature himself? Um, or is it the environment and circumstances in which he finds himself? Is he an, an enormously wronged sort of Byronic hero in some sense who is just lashing back at a world that has treated him and molded him badly to go back to your clay analogy. Um, what's your thinking on this defense? Well, I think that Mary raises the question but doesn't answer it per se. Um, I think she leaves it and this is one of the successes of the novel, I think, is that she raises many questions, uh, valid question, asks the right questions um, and suggests, however, that there's a complexity to all the answers. And once again, on this front, um, so when he cites his environment and so forth, we have sympathy for the creature. And this is one of the things that comes out of the, the story is that uh, it really is the case that the monster, it seems to me, um, in Shelley's rendering is less, we almost feel sorry for Victor as well. We feel sorry for the creature, we still feel sorry for Victor, and we even feel sorry for Walton. All of them are um, really the victims of a false ideology. They, 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 they're thinking the wrong way, they're not thinking lovingly enough. They're just, there's a way of attitude and a way of thinking. And they, they point to their environment, but ultimately the environment they use as an excuse. And she almost presents as an excuse for their conduct. It explains why they do what they do. But it ne we never get away from the suspicion or even the strong sense that they've still done something that is wrong and they are responsible for it. So she raises it and she presents it in a way that we, I think, actually do feel some sympathy for the even these terrible masculine creatures, while at the same time ultimately holding them responsible. Uh, but, but I don't think it, it's on the scale um, where we would expect it to be, which is simply that uh, I don't think we see the 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 monster as as a monster. 
I think that's I, right. I, I think at the end of the day, we we take pity on him. Yeah, if you've only got some of the more modern, relatively shallow treatments of this uh, this story, like uh, the 1931 film or something like this, that's a pretty straightforward, excuse the, uh, the, the connection here, black and white kind of an image of uh, yeah. the, the monster and his moral complexity. He doesn't have any moral complexity. No, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The moaning thing, the bolts in the neck, all that kind of the old cliches now. Um, so a lot of people who uh, a lot of my students who come to the actual novel for the first time after having glancing contacts with more popular, more modern renderings of the narrative are quite shocked by what they encounter in here. It's like this is not the, the story I watched on television or anything like this. No, it certainly isn't. Um, and we also note here that, I mean, we, we have to remember that Mary Shelley, along with the Romantics, is inheriting this very Rousseauian notion of man being basically good. You see the monster at the beginning, he's confused, he's lost, he's like a giant yeah. babe in the woods, quite literally. Yes. yes. And he encounters the family and he, he's fascinated with them. Well, that's positive. Um, he's trying to learn from them. Okay, that's positive. He uh, develops, a, he begins to feel benevolently towards them. Okay, that's all good. He tries to help them in various ways with firewood and things like this. Um, and so it seems like he's basically good and having lived close to nature, he's on sort of a moral arc up. He's, he's becoming a good character. And then of course, everything goes wrong with his environment. The family rejects him. Chased off, he's beaten. He's at another point, he's shot um the world attacks him based yeah. on his uh, based on his appearances and it is all profoundly maybe even existentially unfair and this is what pushes the creature that was on a good moral arc onto a monstrous moral arc but as you yeah. say it generates sympathy on our part because we can see this all happening layering onto that is this notion here that mary shelley was very much um the apple of her father's eye, William Godwin. Oh, yeah. And, and he was very, very determined that she should have a strong, rich education while she was still young, which perhaps partially explains why an 18-year-old can turn out a text like this. Um, however, so she was very influenced by her father's ideas, and this is why I mentioned the determinism earlier. Can anybody break from the moral arc in which they find themselves in this novel, or is it all ultimately determined if we knew all the factors that were... Uh, feeding into each and every decision uh, the characters were making along the way would it move like a mathematical equation is it all determined ultimately tragically or joyfully but as it turns out tragically yeah no, um, this, is, this is brilliant mm -hmm. yeah so can they actually escape their fate are they all is frankenstein fated to play god and fall in the process what about the creature what did he ever really have a chance of being a good creature by any metric mm -hmm. I like your point that you made earlier here. It seems to be that there is no moral language and no moral compass in this novel. There's only the question of what one can do and what one can't do, and that's that. Uh, can the creature be accepted by human society? No, is there anything he can do to break that? No, he seems fated to be the monster. And then eventually he embraces that identity. And we feel bad for them, him because, of course, this is not a moral universe as you and I would know. Um, it's uh, there are decisions we make at certain points, and there are things we do in spite of ourselves which map out how we see our character. The monster doesn't seem to have much of that. This is so. This conversation has led me into. I mean, very interesting to talk about books that I'm well acquainted with and have taught myself over the years, but they lead you to different things. 
one of the things that occurs to me, Bill, while we're just talking about this is everybody in the story is a victim. And we have sympathy for the victims. And yet the victims, uh, in some cases, are, are, are awful. Mm-hmm. From the creature down to Victor, down to Walton, there, there, there's a, a, an endless series of victimizations, uh, none of which we hold the characters really responsible for. Even Victor, who creates the creature and abandons him to some degree, he doesn't know what he's doing. So as you said, there's this notion that we're fundamentally good and yet we do these things and, and somehow evil comes into the world, but we aren't really in control of it and the determinism you spoke of. Is this not the beginning of the idea of victimhood as the as the primary way of understanding human nature? The way we talk about it now, everybody's a victim of something. This this whole novel is about people being victims and every every last one of them being sort of a victim. And we don't really judge any of them at the end of the day. We understand them. We try and we get. We try and sympathize with them, perhaps we may do, but there's no there's no register of sin. There's no register of transgression per se. There's no appeal to God. There's no appeal to, to even moral sensibilities. We're drawn into Mary Shelley's way of thinking about this in which ultimately we pity uh, the creature who's a monster, who is a monster physically, his conduct, all these things are monstrous, and yet we actually pity him. It's a strange calculus, but that is actually the way we're we're left with this. And it seems to me the very same sensibilities that made this the first science fiction novel and a primary example of of gothic fiction also makes it the first victim um, novel. Yeah, that's all fascinating, actually. Um, There was another text you mentioned earlier on. Well, no, start where it's, it's appropriate to start. The romantics are very much about this seemingly ironic anti-hero. We've got, of course, the Byronic hero uh, who figures most significantly in this. But if you read romantic texts again and again and again, the hero, the protagonist, I don't think we can call anybody in Frankenstein a hero, but the protagonists typically are underdogs. They are rebel figures. Um, they are outliers. They don't belong anywhere. They they're are marginalized. They're... Yeah, they're wanderers. Um, but let's stick with the word underdog because that's going to suit my purposes best here. So we've got these underdog figures and when the romantics want to tell a narrative which is uh, which ends comedically which ends well then of course this rebel figure will fight against whatever powers may be and ultimately he or or she will be successful. Here obviously we've got uh, the author wants to go in exactly the opposite direction it wants uh, wants to go in a negative direction so it's still an underdog figure but now by circumstances and, and things out of their control they move down this tragic arc towards this horrible fate. Um, you read there, actually, no, you didn't read it here in on Paideia today, but you read it just prior to this. It's just by the section you read where the creature's reading and talking about Paradise Lost. Uh, he's got a bunch of books that are available to him. One of those books is The Sorrows of Young Werther. By this, Goethe, yeah. Yes, and this is another text by Goethe. Um, and this actually was an enormously influential text at this time, just prior to the Romantic Revolution. In it, uh, there's a young man who suffers from a deep malaise, a discontent, an ennui, and he wanders and he asks and he inquires and what have you. It's a novella, I think, if memory serves yeah, it's me. it's an epistolary novel, yeah. Yeah. Um, and eventually he decides that this world cannot satisfy his sublime hopes, dreams, ambitions. He's, he's, a, he's a discontent, and I'm not really a malcontent, but he's, he's no. discontented. 
Annie ends up committing suicide. And this, uh, this text is so influential across Europe that pretty soon the publishers uh, felt compelled to, uh, to put a warning at the beginning of the Sorrows of Young Werther, inveighing against the, uh, the dangers of suicide and the damage. Please, if you read this book, please don't commit suicide. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I tell my students, you can just imagine uh, all of Europe is just sort of rattling with a steady rumble of gunfire as the young men kill themselves. Um, <laughs> so this victim notion um, and the celebration of it, <laughs> you've got the image now in your ears, I'm afraid. I do, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there grows up a culture and Mary Shelley is writing, perhaps she is the most influential writer amongst these people who turn victim, well, no, they render victim status simultaneous with outlying underdog Byronic hero status. These two things merge and become indistinguishable. And they operate in a world that, uh, as we've been saying, has no moral compass. Um, if no you are- No freedom either. Because this yeah. is the fatalistic determinism that you spoke of. Yeah, and this is secular determinism yep. with uh, various theological angles of determinism. Uh, you're, you're, you still allow the, uh, the language of good and evil, right and wrong, ethical and unethical and stuff like this. In the classical world, you did. Yes. Yes. And uh, we see it with the text Oedipus Rex. Um, he was yep. fated to do the evil he did. And yes, yet the gods will punish him. And Oedipus says, this is correct. This is right that you should punish me for the thing I was fated to do. Right. It's harder to talk about those sorts of things in a secular, modern, determinist worldview, such as Mary Shelley may have inherited from her father. Um, if you're fated to do the evil thing and intent doesn't really factor into it, and this is, as you say, this is one of the more interesting things about Walton and Frankenstein and a number of other characters in here. If you're fated to do those things and you hadn't predetermined to do those things, um, it doesn't make sense to talk about your actions in terms of right and wrong. You no. were either going to do it or you weren't going to do it. No. it was so we bad. feel sorry for them. We don't yeah. condemn them. We, right? It's just. Yeah. Um, should Victor Frankenstein be punished for having loosed this creature on the planet? It's, it's a moot point. That's, you know, it's a, an irrelevant question. It, it happened and that was that. Well, I mean, and so again, you said that this has, or we said at the outset that this book, the, the themes and the topics resonate over time. This became an issue in at the end of the Second World War. It was pointed out that the crimes that the Nazis committed against the Jews, among others, there was no law per se, that the, because they did what they did was legal in Germany. It was the law of the land that they should do, they should obey the Fuhrer, that, that was their, so there was no law. Does that mean that it was not wrong? Um, one would have thought so. So how did they demonstrate that? Not by an appeal to the wrongness, by, by creating a law and, and the world's uh, 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 international justice uh, structure and so forth. But that simply, uh, that's not really doing anything other than creating a law which ought to have been already understood. And at the end of the day, there is the, this problem of a deterministic worldview that you've you mentioned uh, quite rightly, and I think it does pervade the novel. Uh, and so really we're dealing with a view of human nature in Shelley's Frankenstein, she announces it. It's a certain view of human nature. It's the modern Prometheus, which does not allow for ethical conduct to really govern uh, actions. There, there can be no freedom in this universe and ultimately no accountability then, no responsibility. Yeah, this, uh, 
I, I mentioned this concept to my students, this notion of determinism and uh, how one's environment and history is fundamentally to blame, to use an now anachronistic language. And my students will uh, initially express misgivings, say, well, I'm, I'm not a determinist, I'm not a fatalist. And I, I, I say to them, look, if somebody in a modern Canadian court is brought in and he's done something illegal, there is a code and it is illegal. And we can agree on that. And he indeed, he admits to having done this thing. Nevertheless, um, it is taken into account oftentimes, at least uh, as a mitigating circumstance, that perhaps he grew up with bad parenting, dysfunctional parenting, abusive parenting. He hung around with the wrong people. He was from an impoverished neighbor neighborhood. Um, his, his upbringing was in some ways influencing the moral caliber of his actions. And should that be taken into account? And we do tend to take that in, into account nowadays. Um, so these are well, things the law, that- law had always taken those things into account. I mean, even biblical law and Roman law, they would uh, certainly biblical law would take into account those things. But now it's to the point of determinism. That's yes. what your point is. Yes, exactly. Um, so in some senses, I think a lot of modern people wandering around in North America are closet determinists. Uh, and that determinism is closeted off from themselves, the very people who uh, express various deterministic notions in their discourses and actions and things that they do. So, so my environment determines me. Yes. And you if my entire and and by if my environment determines me, then I have to see as my primary concern my the environment. <laughs> I have to take no. That's right, and yeah. it's this circle. So yeah, you, of course you, you, we then have to worry about the environment because after all we are the products of the environment. That's right. Uh, who made who? It's a chicken and egg sort of a thing here. And you, you can also if you want to get. Yeah, if we want to get thoroughly postmodern about it, we could even say further that this is actually um, bound up in the dynamics of hegemonics. It's a power thing. Who has power over who? Does my environment have power over me or do I have power over my environment? And here we have Victor Frankenstein playing around with delusions literally of godhood. Um, this is the ultimate power that he's playing with and seeking for and actually finding and then finds much to his dismay that this is also his undoing. That was good, Bill. Um, but I think we, without, I mean, without digging into the novel more particularly, I think we talked about it in general terms and also some of the main thematic features and also some of the really interesting uh, ideas that emerge out of it, which aren't just important for this novel, but really for the uh, literature that follows it. I do, I see it as a key novel in that sense. Well, you and I talk about this all the time. The, the, this is an ongoing conversation and you and I have a tendency to talk uh, about things which we hope have a more broad and universal importance. So the main important talking points of any great text that we're looking at here will be relevant to any time, any culture, anywhere. It's the problem of being human. That's what we're trying to address here. So yeah. very much one of those texts. Yes, yes. And so I like to read it for that reason in, in that light as well. Anyway, but we I think we've talked around it uh, next time. We are going to stick in the 19th century, but rather later the Victorian period. I think we're going to talk about Alfred Lord Tennyson. Um, I will talk about amongst ourselves what the text per se will be, but Tennyson will be the subject matter. Uh, looking forward to that very much. But I'm Dr. Scott Masson with Paideia Today with my colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye for now.